Have you met people like this? Uh, this is not a positive characteristic, okay? This is one of those things that I wish I had not learned from my dad, but I have this feeling that somehow by tapping my brakes at just the right time or by changing lanes a little earlier than I should, I can send just the right message so that this person will know they should do their thing differently. And so I, I've been trying to do that for, I'm 45 now, I started driving at 16, so almost 30 years I've been training people on the road. And <laughs> yeah, so far it has had, yeah, it has had no positive impact <laughs> whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it's mostly negative, uh, especially when Jennifer is in the car with me. She doesn't appreciate my training techniques. <laughs> and so she will inform me that I, I need to do that differently. And there's one very stark example of this in the negative that we had when we were uh, just married. We lived in a little town called Santo. It's not San Antonio. It's not short for San Antonio. It's just Santo. And it's about 60 miles west of Fort Worth in Texas. And to do anything in Santo, you had to go somewhere else. Okay, you didn't do anything in Santo. So we would drive to uh, Weatherford, which is about 30 miles, to go to the grocery store. And we'd drive another 30 miles to Fort Worth, so about an hour away, to do anything of going out to eat at a nice restaurant, going to the movies. Date night pretty much always ended up being in Fort Worth. So one night we went to the movies in Fort Worth. We're coming back late on a Friday. And some of the stereotypes about Texas, um, well, some of them are true. Uh, I grew up there, so I'm allowed to say that. And we were driving down the highway. And I'm sure that in my mind, I have changed some of these memories. But I'm going to go with what I think happened. And you can ask Jennifer for other details later. But um, so we're driving down the highway. We're going west on I-20 out of Fort Worth. And there's nobody on the road. It's after midnight. Um, there's nobody on the road. And there's a truck up ahead, like a Chevy pickup truck. And he's in the other lane. And I went past him because I was faster than him. And something about what I did made him very upset. I don't know if I changed lanes back over too soon for him. I don't know if he thought I had my bright lights on. I don't know if he just didn't like the way we looked. I don't know what we did wrong. But he got right behind us, put on his brights, and began to what felt like follow us with about a two-inch gap. So naturally, that was scary. I didn't like it very much. So I sped up a little bit, and he stayed right with me. I thought, okay, well, that's not working. So I tried training attempt number two to get him to go around me. I slowed way down, got down to 50, got down to 40, got down to 30 on the freeway, speed limit 65. And all he's doing is staying an inch behind me. And it got to a point where suddenly we heard these little firecracker sounds like, psh, psh, psh. and I thought, well, that's not good. He's like, throwing something at us or he's bumping us, even though I didn't feel it. I haven't done a lot of demolition derby, so I didn't know what that felt like. But uh, I knew something was happening and it wasn't coming from us. So then I decided this, I got to get, this is the end of this. So I floor it and I go on an off ramp. We had gotten to Weatherford by this point and the, everything's empty. The light's turning red. I'm going to say I made it on yellow. Uh, <laughs> I made it through the light went down the other side. This is not how it's supposed to go. You get on the access road, you go around and come back. I didn't do that. I kind of just shot through, went down the other side. And at that point, the truck no longer followed us. I don't know if that was his exit. I don't know if my maneuver was so skillful that he couldn't follow. 
But at that point, we no longer saw the truck. So I think this is over. Yes. Meanwhile, Jennifer is like about to just fall apart, kill me. Um, she is not happy whatsoever, as you can imagine. Well, I got up the next day and I realized we were in way more danger than we thought. Those little firecracker sounds was a gun being shot at us. And I realized this when I found the bullet hole in the bumper of our car the next morning. Now, that was pretty dumb, right? To engage someone on the freeway, no matter what I thought I was gonna train him to do, I was not the one in control of that situation. Dumb, could have gone through the wall of our car, could have hit us, could have hit a tire. All kinds of bad things could have happened. Really dumb decision. As I stand here before you today and I tell you that story, I still get that feeling. You know what I'm talking about? That fight or flight feeling that you get when something happens and you know you just barely missed something uh, pretty, uh, pretty big in your life. Well, um, we've all made, see, I'm even shaking telling that story. It just still gets me going like that to know how close we were to that danger. We've all made those kind of decisions. Things that still give us anxiety years later when we think about them. Things that we shouldn't have said, parties we shouldn't have gone to, jobs we shouldn't have taken, purchases we shouldn't have made, um, relationships maybe that we shouldn't have started. And we've all made those choices we wish we could go back and undo. I wish I didn't have that story. I wish I could change that moment and do something differently. But the sad thing is, we're really good at seeing those things after the fact, right? We're good at that hindsight. We're good at the, the hindsight is 2020. We can look back and go, you know, I really should have done that different. I really should have done that different. I should have saved up money longer before I bought that car. I should have done this. I should have taken that other job and not this one. We can see all of those choices after the fact. Um, and another strange dynamic with decisions is that we can see other people's stupidity a lot easier than our own, right? Yeah, everybody laughs because you're like, man, Paul, you're an idiot, but I would never do so. Yeah, we, we can see other people's choices with a lot more clarity when it's us and we're in the middle of that moment and we have those emotions that cloud it and we have the rationalizations in our mind and we look at our own self and we're trying to analyze it. We get all turned around and we don't have the, the ability to really make the choice that God would want us to make. Um. And then we regret another decision in our life. And we have another moment we're looking back on and getting that feeling and wondering how in the world did I get myself in this spot? Well, here's the good news. You are not alone. You're not alone in this decision-making deficiency uh, that's kind of built into us. The Bible is full of people that are in the exact same boat. As Derek likes to say, God doesn't use the people that have it figured out. He uses broken people. He uses people that realize that they don't have it figured out and then they need God to figure it out in them and for them. So the Bible is full of people like this. Even the Apostle Paul, who if you don't know, wrote over half of the New Testament, uh, was the, the original missionary that went and shared the gospel to the Gentiles and started all kinds of churches, really started the church movement um, in the early church. Paul says this in Romans 7, "'For I do not understand my own actions.'" For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So here we go. Paul, one of the most revered figures in the New Testament, doesn't have it figured out. He needs help in his decision making. 
we need help in making our decisions. If we're going to be the followers of Christ that God wants us to be, we need a new pattern. We need to frame it somehow differently. The way that we're doing it doesn't work. You know the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? That's us a lot of times with our decisions, isn't it? So every time that we're making a decision, we're basically asking and answering questions. And if you're like me, they kind of go like this. Is there anything wrong with it? That's a starting point, right? Is there anything wrong with it? Or maybe we go to the next kind of level and we say, well, maybe it's not the best choice, but I really want to do it. And what, are the, what would be the potential consequences if I get caught? Like, is it any big deal if I get caught? Maybe it's just a, it would be a small thing and I could probably get by with that. I could deal with those consequences, right? So we start to balance like that. The risk reward idea. I think I'm gonna get away with it, but even if I don't, what would be the worst that could happen? Have you ever said that or heard someone say that? What's the worst that could happen, right? So if, it's like if there's an imaginary line between a right God-honoring decision and one that we know um, we should not do, a sinful one. We're basically asking, all right, God, how close to this line can I get without going over, right? That's how we think because I want to get the most out of life and I feel like God is trying to hold me back. So I want to get as close to that line as I can, maybe even dip my toe over just a little bit because I, I don't think the consequences are going to be that big a deal. And that is the mindset that causes our downfall. We're, simp we're asking the wrong questions. So for followers of Christ, the question is not whether something is moral, ethical, legal, or harmful. There's a much more important question that has to be part of our process. And we're going to find it in one of Apostle Paul's letters. The guy we talked about just a second ago, he wrote letters to churches that he started, and one of them was in a town called Ephesus. So we're going to be in Ephesians, um, and we're going to actually look at chapter 5. But before we get there, I want to kind of catch you up on the first four chapters. Because normally at Common Ground, we like to pr uh, preach through books of the Bible. And the reason that's important is the original audience, the original situation should inform what we understand that God was trying to say to them. And then what are the truths that also apply to us? How was he, because of his inspiration in his word, revealing himself, what is that truth to me based on what he was saying to them? Sometimes we just think about what he's saying to me and we miss the original context. And that's where you can get in some trouble. So we want to talk about the first four chapters of Ephesians so we know kind of where Paul is starting. Um, Ephesus was a very wealthy city. It was a bustling harbor city, lots of wealth, because they were at the end of what was called the Silk Road that connected Asia to the ancient Near East. So you've heard of that in your history classes. I see some students shaking their head. That must be you're in world history right now. So you've got the Silk Road that connected all of this trade, and they got silk, obviously, and, and other things, spices and things that they couldn't get in their own area. And this was a major uh, cultural change when that trade started happening. And they became heavily influenced by other cultures that were coming through. They also had one of the seven wonders of the world. And that was the Temple of Artemis. And this was central to their religion and to their identity. And the, the worship of Artemis was about as um, bad as it gets. Their practices, immoral, cultic kind of a worship. It was a wicked city. So it was a prosperous city. And it was a wicked city. And Paul on his missionary journey 
came to that city and people came to know Christ and they started a church and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a church, to be a follower of Christ in the middle of this context? A lot like maybe we would find today. A wicked but prosperous uh, city, nation. What's it mean to be set apart to follow Jesus in the midst of that kind of a culture? So Paul addresses them. He addresses the followers of Christ and he calls them to be set apart. And he deals with topics in these first, uh, especially three chapters that are at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. So if you haven't read that or if you don't, um, aren't familiar with it, go back and look at that. But the, basically the first three chapters outline the many benefits of following Jesus, what you gain by being set apart and living the way that God wants you to live in the culture that he has placed you. God has created this holy community through his gift of grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And members of that community, those that have followed Jesus and made him their Lord and Savior, have been adopted fully into his family, full heirs of his righteousness and his kingdom, his blessings. Members of that community are adopted and they've been brought from death to life because of the work of Jesus. So when we stand, when we worship, when we get excited about who God is and what he's done, this is really the foundation of where that starts. What he has done through the work of Jesus to bring us from death to life. Paul says, that's who you are, Ephesians. In the midst of your culture, do not forget who you are. And then in chapter four, he turns a corner. He lays out these theological truths about the benefits, but then he gets practical. And he says that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So all this stuff is true about you. Therefore, you should do this. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling, worthy of being set apart. Uh, he proceeds to give kind of, uh, honestly, an overwhelming list of what that means. He uses words like humble, gentle, loving, unity, calls to give grace, to walk in maturity, and to live distinctly from the worldly culture. And that's just a, a, a piece of it. He gets very specific even at times with what it means to walk in a manner worthy. And then he brings in the big idea at the beginning of chapter five. In verse one of chapter five, he says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the summary. This is um, where we land. Therefore, because of all these benefits, because of who you are in Christ, because of the work of Jesus to bring you from death to life, this is the, this is the pivot point. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's no big deal, right? We can do that. You can be an imitator of God, right? Man, it's a scary thing to say. Um, to know this is what he expects. And he spends some time in these following verses kind of fleshing that out a little more. And it's almost like he knows that it's frustrating. It's almost like he knows this is overwhelming in what he says to us next. It's an overwhelming list. And in our mind, I don't know about you, maybe this is just my mind, but as I've studied this over the years and as I look at these kind of uh, things that God expects of me and I know that I fall short, I immediately start to think in my mind, what are the holes in this list? What are the ones that may not be that big a deal? And I can just say, well, I'm, I'm good on those, but man, these over here. Or you find someone, you know, you can always find someone that's a little bit lower than you 
in their development, right? Isn't that great how we can do that? And you can say, well, at least I'm not like them. And that's how we rationalize not being who God wants us to be. At least I'm not like them. No, the measuring stick is to be an imitator of God, to live like Jesus has lived. All right? And so uh, one thing you may not know about me, some of you do, but uh, I really like board games. And I like a lot of board games. Like I have a whole closet full of games that you've never heard of. And one of the games that got us going early on is one that's become super popular, and you can find it at all kinds of stores now, and that's Ticket to Ride. And it's a pretty simple game. You're trying to connect uh, routes on the board and get points based on how many connections you can make across the United States. There's all different maps. Well, this game has gone a little bit crazy in that there is actually a Ticket to Ride World Championship. I don't know if you realize that. It hasn't made it to ESPN yet, but maybe. You, know, you never know. I saw Cornhole Championship on ESPN the other day. So you never know. Maybe Ticket to Ride will make the cut. But this is not something that most people are concerned about, right? You, you don't know the, the last three years' worth of Ticket to Ride world champions, do you? No. It's okay. I don't either. And I, and I love this stuff. There was a guy two years ago that was disqualified after winning the Ticket to Ride World Championship because the video footage showed that he had cheated. And what they figured out was he had played more cards than he could have possibly received in the course of the game for the number of turns that had happened in the game. Now, I don't know how all that works. I'm, I, I don't love the game that much. But uh, anyway, somehow he had hidden cards in his sleeve. He had them under the table. And he was pulling cards out at just the right time to be able to make these connections just a little bit faster than the other people. And it only takes maybe two or three cards over the course of a game. And it's enough to tilt things in your favor. So I'm thinking to myself, OK, you're going to put yourself on the line, your reputation, your life, for the Ticket to Ride World Championship? Really? It's that important to you that you're willing? And then I got to thinking, well, I do that kind of thing all the time. I allow what I want, goals that I have made for myself that really aren't that important, things that people don't even really care about, to allow to make me step over the line and fly in the face of what I know God wants because of some small amount of glory that I might receive for myself. We've got to start to figure out what's really important. What is the framework that we need to have in our mind when we're making choices, when we're living for who God says we are to live for, which is him, to be an imitator of him. We all know we want to know what we can get away with and still be within the confines of what God wants. Show me where the line is. Let me get my toes right on it. But here's where Paul gives us the life-changing question. Here's where the, he flips the script of what we need to ask ourselves. And it's in our, our passage for today, Ephesians 5, 15. We're finally there. We've talked about all four chapters leading up to it. And this is just really a small portion. If you um, don't have a Bible, you can grab one that's under the seat or in the rack under these new chairs. And it's going to be on page 1081 of those Bibles, just so you can get there quickly uh, and find that and know that I'm not just making it up. It really is in God's word, what we're about to talk about. And here's what Paul says, starting in verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Before we start to dive into that, let's pray together. God, I do thank you that you care about us enough 
to help us have a framework to be imitators of you, a framework to make choices that honor you, a framework that make choices that show others their need for you. And God, when we are making decisions, especially when we're in difficulty, the world is looking at us harder than any other time. God, I pray that we would make choices that honor you, choices that bring you glory, choices that make us part of your story, not trying to find a little bit of glory for ourselves, for our own story. God, we love you. And again, thank you for your guidance. Speak to us in these few verses over just these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing, there's three keys, I think, to godly decision-making that he lays out in just this little bitty passage. Three keys to godly decision-making. The first one, he says, look carefully. Look carefully. I don't know if you have kids that drive yet, but what, what is the thing that you say, or maybe your parents said it to you, every time they leave the house, be careful, right? We just throw it out there. Be careful. Maybe it's a small child and they're just like going out in the front yard or they're going in the backyard and you know you're not going to be able to look at them for a little while. Be careful. We just throw that out there. And a lot of times, I know it kind of annoy, annoys me at times. It's like, of course I'm going to be careful. Why do we feel the need to remind ourselves of those things? Um, it's because we want our kids or people want us to pay attention to stay alert, to give ourselves the best chance to come home safely. Why do we know that it's so easy to get distracted? Because we do it ourselves, right? We don't want them to be like us. We want them to be careful. We want them to be alert. Um, it's easy to get distracted and stumble. So anytime someone says, be careful, it's an expression of love. It's an expression of care. So kids, don't get annoyed at your parents. It's another way for them to say, I love you. I want you to come back safe. Um, so be careful. Look carefully. There is an element here that Paul is saying that there's a measured, purposeful approach necessary to following Christ. Good decisions don't just happen and fall in your lap. You need to be walking with Christ always, listening to Jesus always, and then these decisions um, are a part of a measured response, a walk with him. It's not a casual endeavor. It's not passive. The words that he says, he translates here, look carefully, they carry the idea of being exact, of looking at all the information, making a choice based on detailed research with the guidance of God through his Holy Spirit. So look carefully. And then what's the rest of the phrase? It's not look carefully on decisions you make. It's look carefully how you walk. Now, that's one of those phrases we use in church a lot. And I think people that didn't grow up in church, they're like, what do you mean my walk? I mean, I put one foot in front of the other. Isn't that how everybody does it? Right? No, this is, this is your spiritual walk. This is your pattern. It's a journey over time. It's the cumulative effect of your decisions. It's a pattern of life defined by your choices. Your walk impacts everything about you. It's who you are. When we say your walk in Christ, it's who you are in Christ. What, how have you uh, shaped what that looks like by the things that you've done? It's how you manage money, how you care for yourself physically, what job you take, choices you make, all kinds of things, on and on and on. That's your walk with Christ. It encompasses all of you. And Paul says, don't just let life happen to you. Look carefully. Use caution, be careful, make a decision based on looking at the entire picture of things. Look carefully how you walk. It's over time. It's the accumulation of your decisions over time. 
So the first thing, look carefully. Secondly, we need to view everything through the lens of wisdom. View everything through the lens of wisdom. So the rest of verse 15 further defines what he means when he says, look carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. So if your walk is the journey of your life over time defined by your choices, Paul says that the word you should want people to use for that is wise. When they describe you, you want them to say that person is wise when they look at the entirety of your life and your choices. So what is wisdom? It's not, it's not book smarts, thank goodness, right? Wisdom is something different. It's the ability to judge correctly and follow the best course of action based on knowledge and understanding. That's the dictionary definition. The ability to judge correctly and follow the best course of action based on knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 9.10 tells it to us this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So God says, if you want wisdom, start with me. Start with me. Give yourself to me. Have a relationship with me where you put me in the right place in your life and in your heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom that leads to life and ultimate joy begins with knowing and fearing God. It's knowing and doing the will of God. It's something we talked a lot about in our series, uh, Abiding from John 15. It's putting yourself in that position where God works in and through you. It's not about you. It's about what he does. It's about how he lives in you and how he guides you. Wisdom starts in that place. And we see the rest of uh, this phrase that carries into verse 16. He says, make the best use of the time. So being wise is also kind of phrased, making the best use of your time. Time is a precious commodity. I think you understand that it's one of the only things that we can't bottle up. We can't save how much we have is unknown. An article I read a few uh, years ago really impacted me in relation to how I spend time with my kids. And that is, from birth to graduation, we have 936 Saturdays with our kids. 936 Saturdays. So by the time they're age nine, you're halfway there. You're in the 400s already, right? They get to age 13, you're in the 200s starts to get a little scary. That number seems kind of small. I don't have that many chances. You know, they go to school Monday through Friday. You work Monday through Friday. Sunday, you go to church and, you know, you might have group and all kinds of things. Saturday is that day that's kind of set aside and they're limited. Derek and Callie right now are driving back from dropping off Brendan at Biola. Next Saturday is number 937 for them. That's why it's such a hard transition for parents to go through because they realize that that stage is over. And so instead of looking back like we do on our decisions, we need to realize we've got to make the best use of our time. The time that God gives us to live for him and to make the choices that will impact those around us, we've got to make the best use of that time. And it's critical, he says, because the days are evil. The world is not neutral in regards to Christ's followers. The days are evil. The world and its sin is not in the state that God created it to be in. There is pain, abuse, hate, harm, sickness, death. Just watch the news anytime. It's all over the place. Don't allow the evil of our day to steal your most precious commodity, 
time. If you live passively, if you do not look carefully and walk wisely, then the evil of the world will take hold, especially in your decisions. It'll steer you. And before you know it, you're over here uh, and you have no idea how you got there. We've got to follow God's plan and we've got to look closely and we've got to view everything through the lens of wisdom. So it means asking what is best. Notice the questions are not, what do I want? That's not on the list anywhere. It's not, what would bring me pleasure? That's not on the list anywhere. It's not, what makes me feel important? That's not on the list anywhere. It's what is wise? What is best? In light of the limited time that I have in the evil days that I live in, what is it that God would want me to do? That's the framework we've got to start to have. So the first one, look carefully, view everything through the lens of wisdom is the second one. Thirdly, we've got to understand the will of the Lord, he says. Finally, in verse 17, he once again compares kind of two sides to the decision spectrum. So we've got one side, understand the will of the Lord. What's the other side? Being foolish. He says, do not be foolish. Um, Therefore, if you want to abide by what I'm saying, he says, if you want to live wisely, if you want to make the most of your limited time, don't be foolish. What does it mean to be foolish? To be impulsive, to misuse your God-given intelligence, to make choices without the end in mind, to, to choose in the moment, to make it about you and not about God, not seeking his will, not seeing things in their true light, thinking, oh, it's not so bad when we know it's something that God doesn't want us to do. The opposite side of that foolishness, which is where I typically find myself, unfortunately, the opposite side of that is to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, it's kind of odd for someone to command us to understand, right? Can I command you to understand? I can tell my kids to make their bed. I can command them to do the dishes. uh, But can I command them to understand something? Yeah, that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's commanding us to understand, but why? What is understanding? It's to know the facts with perception. So a lot of times we get, we get to the point of knowing the facts, but we don't have the perception part. It's knowing the facts with perception. It's putting the pieces together in a way that allow us to move forward in our decision. This is where we get the idea of application. So it's not enough just to hear the truth. You have to apply the truth and use it in your life to make decisions, to chart your course, to, to um, show you how to walk and how to live over time. Taking what you know and applying it to your experience, to your decisions. That's why uh, groups are so important because that's really where this happens. You hear teaching on Sunday, application happens elsewhere. Application happens out in the world. Application happens as you discuss with other people. Okay, here's what we said this Sunday. What does that mean for me in this thing that I'm dealing with? Or what does the Bible say about this choice that I'm having to struggle with? Or this sin that I can't seem to get over? That's why groups are so important. That's where the application happens. And that's really uh, what God wants us to get to. Not just the knowledge, but the doing The doing is so important. So when he says we're to understand the will of the Lord, that's to know and do, and it gets right at the heart. And Paul is really kind of saying, let's face the facts here. If you're a follower of me, you have the Holy Spirit inside you to guide you and convict you and teach you. You know what God wants most of the time, a lot of the time. 
You already know what God wants. It's the doing part, the obedience part that trips us up. Have you ever known someone that had a heart attack or a stroke and they survived and the doctor put them on a new diet and a new exercise and suddenly their life is completely changed? And what's one of the things they'll say? I should have done this years ago. I should have made these changes years ago. My life is completely different. Um, I can't believe it took a heart attack to get me to make the changes I needed to make to live a healthy life. It's, It's just like us. We know the will of God through his word. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us if we're his children. We understand the will of God, though, when we put that knowledge together with practice. And a lot of our decision-making problems come down to a failure to face up to what we already know because we want to avoid the guilt that comes from not doing what we know we should or from doing what we know we shouldn't. And guess what the word is that Paul uses for that? What does he call that? Foolish. I don't know about you, but I don't like being called that. That kind of stings a little to be called foolish, but I know that it's true so many times in my life. And so based on these three keys, first of all, look carefully. Second of all, view everything through the lens of wisdom. And third, understand, which means to know and do the will of the Lord. We can change the question. We can change the question. Instead of asking if there's anything wrong with it, instead of asking, is it worth it even if I get caught? Instead of asking how far is too far, can't tell you how many times I've answered that one as a student pastor. How far is too far? We should be asking, what is the wise thing to do? What is the wise thing to do? Don't be like the heart attack survivor that finally gets their health in order and says, I should have done this years ago. Confess, repent, begin making decisions today that will lead to a walk. That is a pattern of life that can be described as wise. Maybe for you, that means making the most important decision that you can make, and that is to follow Christ. I talk about the Holy Spirit being in you to guide you and lead you. That doesn't happen until you surrender your life to Christ and make him your Lord and Savior. To ask for forgiveness, to confess him as Lord and make him the Savior of your life. We're going to sing a couple of songs to follow up, just like we always do. Noah and the group are going to come back up and lead us. Um, These songs are an opportunity for you to respond. They're an opportunity for you to respond to God spiritually as you sing, to respond to God physically, maybe by kneeling, to respond to God actively by going to someone and saying, I need prayer. This is me. I don't want to be somebody that says I should have done this years ago. I want to start today making wise choices, having a pattern of life that can be called wise. Maybe today, if that's you and you need to surrender your life to Christ, then you would come and and say to someone, "Um, I need to do that. I need to know what it means to have Jesus as my Savior. You can do that a couple of different ways. You can write on your uh, connection card. Uh, Guess that's also where you can fill out information. You can tear that off, and we can put it in the box right back there. Maybe you feel awkward going up and talking to someone. That's okay. You can put it in the box and we'll come talk to you. We'll connect with you. We'll let you know, we'll let figure out a time where we can discuss this. It's that important. It's a life-changing thing to know Jesus as your savior. Maybe you know Christ. Maybe you've been walking with him, but it's not one that could be called wise. Maybe you're in a season where uh, the pattern of your life would be maybe something different. Maybe even the word foolish 
would apply to you. Maybe you've been asking the wrong questions and your next step today is simply to commit to start asking the right one. Start asking the right question. What is the wise thing to do? How can I make the most of my limited time? Committing to knowing and doing the will of God. Maybe getting in a group is the furthest thing from your mind, but today God spoke to you and he said, you need, you need to do that. You'd be able to sign up today. Maybe the one you wanted is full and you're using that as an excuse not to do it this time. God says, no, that's a step you need to take. Allow him to bring application to your knowledge and have a place where you can share life. But commit to asking that question. What is the wise thing to do? And let us know that. We want to pray for you. We want to support you. We're, as a church, I don't think we do a, a, the best job of sharing maybe what God is saying to us so that uh, those in leadership can pray for us. We want to do that. Please let us know what God's saying to you. Let us know how we can support you. You can fill that out on the card and tear it off and, and put it in the box. We would love to have tons of those to go over every week at staff meeting and to pray for. For Common Ground, you know, we're about to go into a new season as a church, a season of growth, a season where we have twice as many groups as we had last time, a season where uh, we've got more adults committed to that maybe than ever before. And we're going to talk about what it means to be the church over the next three weeks. Our series is The Church. And for us to be the church that God wants us to be, we as the individual parts have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need to commit to being the imitators of God. We need to commit to being his hands and feet, his ambassadors in this world. And that's only possible if we'll ask the right question. Not how close to the line can I get, not can I get away with it, but what is the wise thing to do? Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for the conviction that you bring through your word. God, maybe this message was just for me and I need to get my act together uh, and start asking the right question. But God, I don't think that's true. I think that there's probably others that you're speaking to in this place. And I just pray that they would have the courage to commit, to first of all, admit that they have not been wise. And then to commit, to confess, repent, and commit to asking the right question. And God, if there's those in this room today that you have been pursuing to have a relationship with you, that they've been investigating what it means to know you, and they've felt in their heart that uh, they want to make you their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today's the day they write that down on the card or they find someone after the service that they trust and they say, that's me. I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. God, we would rejoice so greatly. That's why we exist as a church, to see people connect to you that didn't know you before. And God, as we launch into a series about the church, help us to understand that is not just common ground, but as you've given us the vision to understand it is the whole valley, it is the whole world, it is the gathering of all believers in your name. And we pray, God, that we would do whatever small part you want us to do to see that grow, to see people added to your kingdom, to know that whatever we can do to support other churches, that's positive because it helps the kingdom. And God, may we live our own individual lives that same way as we help one another, as we challenge one another, 
as we live for one another so that the world knows a relationship with you is real and makes a difference in who we are and how we live. So be with us as we worship in these next few moments, as we respond. Pray that people would do that in whatever way you are leading them, that there's freedom in this place for us to be and do exactly what you call us to be and do. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray.